Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by a returning guest, great friend of the podcast, our uh, senior economic advisor, Mr. Edgardo Sepulveda, a regulatory economist, originally in telecommunications, but I feel like you're pretty solidly grounded in in energy now. I should hope so. It's been five or six years now. Given how much I know about telecoms, I was a little immodest at the beginning when we started doing this like a year ago, but I think now it's like on an honorary perspective. Yeah, I'm an energy economist now. Yeah, yeah. And we'll we'll actually be talking, we'll actually be talking about like who gets to be called what and who's going to tell me not to call myself something, right? You know, and a few more of your uh, accolades on the energy sphere, E-decarb. E-decarb, uh, yeah, dot... like as in electrification, decarbonization. We're going to have you back um, for an episode shortly to talk about your uh, findings there, um, this 20-plus countries uh, analysis of, of their uh, attempts or successes at decarbonization. So we'll, we'll get into that on another upcoming episode soon. But um, I'm bringing you on, I guess, kind of urgently to discuss something of relevance to Canada, but also to the world. This is the Canada Green Bond Framework. I'm, I'm sort of thinking of it a little bit as our little Canadian version of the EU green taxonomy. I'm going to check with you to see if that's valid or not. And of course, this has many reasons for being relevant to me, but it's a little bit personal because uh, this features one of the uh, great villains of uh, Canadian anti-nuclearism, uh, Mr. Stephen Gilbo, who I had the pleasure of a bit of an ambush interview with uh, in Glasgow. Uh, at COP26, where he told me as a way to avoid uh, having to, I guess, make a statement about whether his uh, anti-nuclear activist past was going to cloud his judgment as minister. Um, he told me the government had no role deciding on the technology of the energy transition. The market would decide. LCOE would decide. Got a great episode on that uh, with Mark, of course. But here we have it. We have the Canada Green Bond Framework, um, and it does take a very um, particular position on nuclear. But I'm going to bring you in now, Edgardo, to uh, tell us a little bit about this breaking news. It just, uh, I think, was released a couple of days ago. That's right. We're recording Sunday, March 6th. And I think this came out either February 28th or March 1st. So it's it's very recent. Because I've been on the show before, I would kind of, in terms of the bigger picture, we're going to provide you with a bit of an update of what's going on and some of the sort of conceptual framework. But there's two, there's a, at least two episodes that I'd recommend, previous episodes on the couple. One was with uh, Art Hyde, with Arthur Hyde, who did uh, an ESG episode. I think it might have been in April, May of last year. And that was super good. Uh, I've learned lots about that. And then I did one with you maybe two months ago, Chris, on Bruce Power, uh, on Bruce Power, the Green Bond. So those are two kind of like background episodes. So the nutshell is, is that in the context of the federal government borrowing. And again, for those of you who are outside of Canada, uh, we are a federal country. Uh, and so the you know government of Canada does their own borrowing, uh, as other uh, national governments do, to uh, finance their services. Um, and then we also have provincial uh, and municipal uh, borrowing uh, authorities. But in the context of their most recent uh, fiscal plan, the federal government had announced 
about a year ago that they would be issuing their first green bond, right? And a green bond is a, a financial instrument, basically a loan where the government borrows money uh, from the private sector and promises to pay them uh, interest rate and the capital after X number of years. So they do this all the time. And they had announced about a year ago that they would be issuing a green bond. It would be their first green bond, right? So a lot of uh, governments around the world uh, have issued sustainable bonds, social bonds, green bonds. There's a whole classification process about what is green, what is sustainable. We'll get into that. But they had uh, signaled about a year ago that they were going to be doing this. They had established a whole framework about how they would do this. They had identified and established a series of private sector advisory bodies to help them out in understanding what the sustainable finance framework was and how they could get into it. They ignored all of that, by the way, which we'll talk about that as well. And so last, last week, they issued a framework that is the precursor to actually issuing a bond. And this framework includes a taxonomy, right? And a taxonomy, uh, which goes back to the, the Greek, uh, taxis means kind of classification, nomi means system. It's a way to use a system classification. So for example, if you remember your biology taxonomy, you know, <laughs> you know you've got, you know, right. uh, vegetable, uh, yeah. mineral, all that kind of stuff, right? It's just a way to classify things. And so in this green bond framework, the federal government of Canada includes a taxonomy of things that are um, eligible to receive financing and things that are not eligible to receive financing. And so under the eligible yes. criteria, there's a bunch of stuff, um, renewable, wind, solar, energy efficiency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And on the excluded part is among other things, tobacco, fossil fuels. Gambling. <laughs> alcohol. <and> alcohol. <laughs> and nuclear energy. And nuclear energy. So, <laughs> so Tom has a good a good friend of mine had a funny tweet saying that um, we should uh, crack a few beers, uh, smoke a few darts, and take a gamble on uh, on financing <laughs> nuclear energy. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, all, all joking aside, I mean, I've I've seen this before. There was uh, when I actually was when I was interviewing Art Hyde I, 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 for that uh, ESG episode. You know, it had come across my table. Um, actually, I think it was Simon Holmes Accord who was denouncing a green fund that was listing nuclear alongside a similar. Uh, list of deplorables. Um, I think that was an Australian fund that also lumped in, uh, you know, trafficking in endangered animal species, organs, uh, you know, just you name it, it's there, right? Pornography. <laughs> um, it was a little shocking, though. I mean, I feel like there's been a lot of water under the bridge, um, you know, over the last few years. Um, as you mentioned, the Bruce uh, Green Bond, I think it was for 500 million. I think they ended up raising seven times that amount. There's certainly a lot of interest in it. A lot of people that are are buying in uh, literally to uh, this understanding of nuclear as as green and critical for um, an energy transition towards decarbonization. Uh, the EU green taxonomy, as you mentioned, despite the uh, most powerful country in the EU um, with a fundamentalist aversion to nuclear, um, finally nuclear made its way into that framework. So that's it. 
you know, and that was after years, years yep. of of debate. And again, referencing old episodes, we had a great episode with Mirto Tripathi that really goes through that. Well, so that's exactly it. That's on. sorry, and that's the other one I should have mentioned. Uh, mentioned is 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 that there's a whole history of that. And so, look, I mean, I I, I think we should we should talk about the process, right? I think that's super important in terms of credibility, sustainability. Is the process in which governments and government entities make decisions, right? That is one of the core issues that as a telecoms economist is is hyper important, right? If you're going to make arbitrary, capricious decisions, right, that are not based in fact, that do not follow natural justice, procedurally correct processes, then regardless of the substantive decisions that you've made, your decision-making process is flawed, right? And so from a flawed process often comes flawed decision-making, right? So there's one process, and I'll get to that. The other one is substantively, right? Uh, Substantively, this is not a science-based decision. And so that's one of the other things. So, So both in the process and on the substance, this is an incorrect decision. Um, and it's surprising, as you say. Yeah, maybe I'm going to try and take a stab at some of the reasons that that I find it surprising, this framework and why, why nuclear wasn't included. So you, you mentioned there's a, a bunch of uh, feel-good eligible activities, you know, and this includes things like efforts that help biodiversity, conservation efforts, um, clean water efforts. Within the um, the renewable power, you know, it's, it's pretty specific. Wind, solar, micro hydro, not large hydro, um, bioenergy. So biomass is in. And as long as the direct emissions are less than 100 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour, again, the latest uh, UN uh, Economic Commission uh, of Europe report says that nuclear is at four grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour, so a full one uh, twentieth of of those emissions. Um, and just relevant to Canada, you know, I, I tend to talk about these things a lot, but you know, seventy six thousand. Like if we're thinking about ESG, right? We have the environmental side. You know, we have the richest uranium ores in the world. Our mining footprint is thus absolutely tiny. You know, it's the largest employer of, of First Nations and an industrial employer of First Nations. Um, you know, we have this 96% made in Canada supply chain. But I, I was just doing a calculation on on the uranium side of things. Um, you know, nuclear energy offsets 2 billion uh, tons of CO2 per year. Um, I don't have the most recent numbers, but um, as of 2018, um, Canada supplied about 13% of uh, global uranium needs. And so that offsets uh, 260 megatons of CO2, which is one third of Canada's national emissions. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we don't like we're not used to thinking about like you just you're not allowed to think about nuclear in these terms. And I don't really like talking about carbon offsets too much. But right. I mean, if we're going to go there, mm-hmm. it's pretty significant that we produce a natural resource that offsets one third of our country's national emissions. Um you know, and to give you more context, I mean, our, our oil sands um, emit about 70 megatons of CO2 per year, and our uranium offsets 260 megatons of CO2 per year. So th- those are a few reasons that I, I think nuclear should be, you know, pretty um, eligible. We could talk about the coal phase. I won't go on forever, but but we have a solid record yeah. in uh, in Canada and in Ontario of, of nuclear doing pretty incredible things for the environment, clean air, um, and society in general. I'm going to get off my... my uh, my hobby was there. And, uh... <laughs> well, no, hey, listen, let me, this is this is ultimately a dialogue, Chris. And so, just in terms of just stepping back a bit, like 
one of the things about economics, and I'm an economist, I, I call myself an economist, by the way, uh, Chris, and no one's going to stop me from calling myself an economist. Unlike you, you're a medical doctor. And if, someone, if I was to call myself a medical doctor, I would have the law on my case because that is a regulated profession and licensed. And so therefore, the state, via collective action, considers it important to have a taxonomy of people who can call themselves doctors and those that cannot. It does, uh, I don't know, what the, it does yank my chain a little bit that naturopaths get to call themselves doctors, hey, but, but, but that's all another, that aside. That's all that aside. <laughs> what I'm saying is that we do that all the time, right? And, and the reason that we do that is because one of the things, the way that, that uh, markets and capitalism work supposedly well is through perfect information. Right. So if I can't tell who's a doctor and who isn't, right, am I going to make the right consumer decisions? If I can, I trust you or maybe not. And so I don't have to do my own research to trust you because I have the state and the licensing body saying, you know, you're a doctor and I can trust you because you're qualified and you had to do X, Y, and Z. And in this day of misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, um, there is a marketplace of ideas. And one of the ways in which we're supposed to try to understand that is if, if the marketplace is not giving us the right uh, type of information where not all of us have the facility uh, and, and time to be able to research your particular practice and understand whether or not you can be trusted as a doctor, we have uh, short forms of being able to do that. And the way we do that is through a licensing body, right? So let's take that to electricity and energy generally. Uh, for about 20 years, people have been calling themselves green, sustainable, ESG, willy-nilly. Willy-nilly. I'm green. You're an environmentalist. No, you're not an environmentalist. You're greenwashing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, there's been people, and it's all unregulated, laissez-faire, wild west. Claim, claiming, claiming a certain uh, degree of authority by, by calling themselves like green economists, sustainable Right, economists. yeah, whatever. That, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or calling okay. yourself an environmentalist. Like there's no, there's no world environmentalist union that says only you can call yourself an environmentalist or whatever, right? Anyone can call it. So you self-identify. You self-describe as green. Anyway, I'm making, I'm, I'm kind of making joke with this, but it's no joke because there's billions of dollars to be made by calling yourself right. green. And how you're labeled. Right? So there's billions of dollars to be made by the people who are in receipt of that capital. And there's billions of dollars to be made by the intermediaries, whether it's the bank or the financial institutions or the advisors or the people who designate you as green or not green, right? So, so in this free-for-all, and look, and, and there's some more reputable and less reputable, and this is a long-standing issue. If we talk about doctors and the need to designate who is a doctor and who isn't, in capitalism and markets generally, this has long existed. That's why we have intellectual property rights. That's why you can't call the sparkling wine that is made here in Niagara champagne. Champagne is designated, there's a taxonomy. Champagne is made according to the Champenoise 
methodology in a specific geographic area in France. You can't call champagne that. So it's the same thing. What is green? What is champagne? What is a doctor? Who's an economist? Right? So in this free-for-all of information, disinformation, the EU decided that market sentiment was insufficient to be able to drive the diversion of the capital necessary, the trillions of dollars that are necessary to be able to designate what is actually green, right? So they set up, as we talked about, a, a process, a scientifically based process that determined what was green and what was going to be mandatory. Because remember the other thing about all of these green labels, no one's forcing you to call yourself green or not green right? It's all voluntary. It's all market-driven market sentiment. So then in the context, you have the EU who are putting out their taxonomy and who, for electricity purposes, have determined certain conditions and certain kinds of hydro in certain conditions and gas in certain conditions and nuclear in certain conditions are sustainable, right? They never use the word green. It's all sustainable. So in that context, the government of Canada about four or five years ago established uh, an external panel called the Panel on Sustainable Finance, right? Because Canada wanted to get into this. We have our own net zero commitments. We have our own Paris Protocol commitments, et cetera. And so we wanted to do this, right, uh, as a country. And we set out that panel. That panel did a recommendation. They said they asked for three things. They said, look, we don't have a taxonomy in Canada, right? So we're going to establish a taxonomy for Canada that's going to be voluntary. And they gave that job to the Canadian Standards Association, right? So whenever you know you ever see the little thing about electricity and it has a Canadian standard, CSA, that's the Canadian Standards Association. Unfortunately, you know that job was given to them about two years ago, and it's like crash and burn. They cannot agree on a taxonomy unsurprisingly, right? Because it's difficult, right? So to this day, the Transition Finance Taxonomy Working Group, after two years, has not issued a final result because it is blocked. They can't seem to reach a consensus. The Fed's also established a Canadian financial group, again, to advise them. They haven't issued anything. And so the feds had uh, established all of these kind of like external advisory groups to advise them on how Canada as a whole and the government should be doing these kinds of what they call sustainable finances. None of them have published anything because it's really difficult. How long was the EU arguing about this? Three years, four years, right? And ultimately, as we know, in spite of the scientific consensus, the final decision was political, right? It was a deal done between Merkel and Macron about whether or not what should be included and what shouldn't be included, right? Even though we have the scientific basis to be able to determine what is and what isn't sustainable. Right. And there was the and joint so research it's in that, context. that was tasked with looking at the science. But, yeah. Well, that's sort of tasked with looking at the science. So anyway, so fast forward, federal government in Canada, which has about a trillion dollars worth of debt. Uh, sounds like a lot. Um, 
GDP in Canada is $2 trillion, so it's about 50% GDP, 55 60%. It sounds like a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, by other OECD countries and G7 countries, is actually relatively low, is going to be, and this year in particular, is going to be issuing above half a trillion dollars. Uh, some of it is refinancing, some of it is new. So a portion of that, so 1%, is going to be the green bond. So it's important to put this into perspective. This is the first green bond that the federal government issues. And a green bond or a sustainability bond or whatever is basically says that the proceeds of the bond will be used for specific eligible uses. And so that's the taxonomy. But there's two problems. First of all, the advisory bodies that the government uh, established two or three years ago to advise them on how to do this, have not issued any public process, any public report, any recommendation. And second of all, this framework was developed totally within and internal to the government. It was never actually consulted on to us, to the public. And I've confirmed that. I've now confirmed that. And so you have basically this arbitrary, capricious decision-making process without due to either expert or internal consultation. And the, the two main decision-makers, the two co-chairs of, of, I guess, the committee that, that put this framework together are uh, Christy Freeland. She's our deputy prime minister. Yeah, but she's, she's acting under, yeah, she's, 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 yeah, she's acting under it. So it's a joint uh, ministry of finance because they do the money component of the federal government. And then, and then uh, Stephen Gilboa, who is the environmental minister, right? So it's and a joint because there's money, and then there's the there's the money, and then there's the you know the sustainability aspect of it. And so, so yeah, this, so it, this came as a bit of this came as a bit of a surprise for me, right? Because um, it was only in the French language press, but there was an article that came out about how uh, Gilboa's former environmental friends were, um, you know, incredibly upset with him for having finally said that, yes, nuclear um, was going to be a part of the mix as long as it could make itself cheaper than three cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, <laughs> so this was seen as, as a huge betrayal. Um, and my, my impression was, um, you know, that maybe government, which has sort of got a bit of a schizophrenic relationship with nuclear, they have put um, a certain amount of support into, um, you know, technology, technology development. They've uh, given tens of millions of dollars to a couple of um, uh, Gen 4 um, SMR, advanced nuclear companies. Um, and our previous minister of natural resources and climate change was quite bullish on nuclear. Um, so I, I thought maybe Stephen Gilbo was being disciplined and, and brought to account. But that's that's why it was so shocking for me to see this guy. Here's this co-chair on this committee and nuclear's uh, basically pornography, gambling, tobacco, alcohol, firearms, uh, you know, lives in that company. Yeah. I mean, there's the political aspect. There's the inconsistency aspect of it right like we talked we talked in our last episode chris about you know how for example uh, the federal this federal government uh, would not be able to use these green bond towards proceeds of some of their own equity stakes i mean they own the tmx pipeline uh that's 100% owned by the federal government right they own the 10% of the Hibernia uh, oil fields, right? So, so you've got this schizophrenic kind of like whereby they are excluding certain uh, types of activities 
through this green bond process without due process, without um, and by the way, Chris, I mean, the other thing that's surprising is that this is a 20-page document that summarily excludes nuclear energy literally without justification, right? Right. It, there's, it, one, there's one there's paragraph. One paragraph. There's no justification. One paragraph that explains it, and, it, and the justification is, I think I have it here in front of me, basically it's in recognition of the exclusionary criteria embedded in major green bond indices and green investor and market expectations. Um, that, right. That's the rationale. And, and, it's literally a sentence. Well, yeah. Right. And but the, I mean, the rationale basically is, you know, market sentiment. We don't think that it may or may not be acceptable, right? So like that's the but, thing. But so Bruce, not, Bruce's green bond brought in seven times what it was asking for. So so. Well, that's exactly that's it. And the accurate. EU taxonomy was just issued. Right. So it's as if this was thing. This was like issued last year, and and, and you know the thing is, I mean, they're the first. I mean, one of the things about the bond is that you know all the good stuff is always at the back of it right <laughs> because that's what the disclaimers are right if you read the disclaimer to the actual bond framework it says um and i quote there is currently no clear definition legal regulatory or otherwise or no clear market consensus as to what constitutes a green sustainable or equivalent labeled project or as to what precise attributes are required for a particular project to be defined as green or sustainable. Uh, nor can any assurance be given that a clear definition or consensus will develop over time, nor if a definition or a consensus develops that it will not change over time. Accordingly, no assurance is given that the eligible green expenditures, which is what they've been defined in the body of the text, will satisfy any present or future investment criteria or guidelines with which an investor is required or intends to comply, in particular, blah, 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 right? So, you know, it's like when you, when you press... This is the disclaimer. Uh, this is the disclaimer. And the disclaimer basically says, you know, what we're saying is, it's our opinion. They base it on the International Capital Market Association, ICMA, uh, the Green Bond Principles, which is one of dozens of these groups, intermediary groups, who are having their own taxonomies or principles. And they themselves say that they're not a taxonomy. Like the, the, the list of indicative types of projects that are listed in this green uh, bond principles are not exclusive. They're indicative. And they suggest that uh, investors, you know, take into consideration national or regional taxonomies. This is a fundamentally political take, and it's disappointing because it's not science-based. It kind of talks about, you know, what is acceptable or what they consider may be acceptable in the market without actually basing it on science without actually having studied, and without actually having sought, uh, at least publicly, external opinion. So it's disappointing both from a substantive and a procedural perspective. And what's, what's your feeling on this? I mean, is this, are they presenting this fait accompli? Like, this is it, here it is, uh, suck it up? Or is this going to be the beginning of a process? Um, I mean, I got to, you know, um, I guess reveal my hat here. Also, you know, I'm the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. We're we're planning on um, going to going to bat on this one. Going to try and hold the minister accountable and see if if we can get this reversed and engage 
Canadian society into discussion about this um, this issue. But is is your sense that this is sort of they they assume this is kind of the final thing? We no more work for them to do, or or was this launched as sort of a shot in the dark? And okay, let's have a discussion now. Well, put it this way: formally, it was not a consultation. It's not a discussion document. Well, I mean, this is it for now, right? I mean, uh, they themselves, as 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 I just read the disclaimer, they themselves recognize that there is no universal uh, accepted taxonomy in Canada or anywhere else as to what constitutes sustainable and what isn't. It is highly contested ground. If you're going to base this on opinion, is one perspective. That is to say, what is market sentiment or how you interpret market sentiment. Obviously, Bruce Power, who just did a 500 million, so half a billion dollar green bond that was that had a, a second a second external opinion. I mean, this also had a second opinion by a different intermediary, you know, standards organization. Like what I see the risk and the danger and the folly in this is that uh, we will soon see the actual bond, right? So there's going to be a bond I expect within three or four uh, months and there's going to be a bond and it's going to be picked up uh, and it's going to be a green bond. It'll be Canada's first green bond. France, Germany, Hong Kong, China has issued many, many green bonds. So from that perspective, Canada is right. is is behind on that. Late and you know, and then corporate bonds have been issued way before that, right? Like Bruce, Brookfield. I mean, there's been a bunch of other green bonds, but the federal government indicates that this is the first, that the next upcoming bond will be the first of many. So this is the danger. Yeah. So this is a, the $5 billion uh, initial right. green bond. Yeah. And, I, I, and think, again, I think I saw them say somewhere in the report that, you know, they anticipated that, you know, that's been estimated the green transition was going to cost many trillions of dollars and that ultimately Canada would probably need to spend something like $2 trillion to kind of meet all of its climate goals. So this this is the, the, the beginning of, of quite a large expenditure to come. Can I tell you what I would do with $5 billion? Uh, um, go for it. Wait, way to set you up for asking me the question I want to answer here. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've talked about this before. You were on Emmett Penny's Nuclear Barbarian talking about Pickering. Um, you know, $5 billion would, would uh, fund half of the refurbishment of Pickering. Um, Pickering going offline is going to erase one third of Canada's emission reductions to date since peaking in 2007. Mm-hmm. We're going to raise national emissions by one percent by closing one nuclear plant. Um, so there's there's a you know big opportunity here. Um, and when I look at you know the other stuff that's listed, it's pretty wishy washy. I mean, stuff that sort of feels good and sounds nice. Um, and there's going probably going to be some like wetlands protection. Um, you know what else do we have here? Pl- planting some trees. Uh, you know, um, and helping homeowners install some nicer windows. I mean, this is stuff that's nice. It's it's kind of frilly, but like. If we wanted to take a real science-based approach, I think it would be interesting. Like we've talked before about carbon abatement cost um, being the the tool that should really drive our our decarbonization decisions, right? How can we most rapidly, you know, and for the least expense, um, for biggest bang for our buck, decarbonize? It would be really interesting to do a sort of carbon abatement cost analysis, or at least have that guide us in terms of like if we were to have a science-based green taxonomy, that's the approach I think we should take, not just arbitrarily picking a bunch of things that kind of feel nice and align with current, you know, environment of identity politics or whatever else. 
I mean, look, I mean, in that free-for-all Wild West of everyone calling themselves green, sustainable, whatever, and, you know, I mean, it, and it's obviously there are people who are, you know, who we would all consider that the other green projects, and, you know, they don't get sort of the financial credit. Because one of the things that has happened is that people have done the, the, the studies and, uh, you know, people have studied at least on the secondary market and and also in terms of the amount of subscription or over subscription the difference between uh, let's call them non-green bonds right what in the field is often referred to as vanilla bonds right versus green bonds right and and so people people have recognized at least in the secondary market there is what they call a greenium right which is a combination of premium and green which is that that there are financial incentives to be identified as green. So the same way that, you know, before this uh, IP of champagne was, there was a financial incentive for Niagara on the lake sparkling wine to call themselves champagne because you, you, you coat, you, you know, you, and so what you're trying to do with a taxonomy is trying to, based on science, is to try to stop that greenwashing, right? Where everyone wants to call themselves green, right? So it's a taxonomy, and well, and hopefully and hopefully spend your money as wisely as possible, right? Right. And that's exactly. Why, again, exactly. I think using right. something objective like carbon abatement cost is the way to go here. I mean, one one of the things they want to fund is, um, you know, um, zero emission vehicles. That's very noble, but for them to be zero emission, they need to be powered by you know zero emissions electricity. And we're making no progress there. We're actually shutting down a massive electricity plant. We're shutting our clean electricity cathedral, as Emmett Penny would call it. And we're shutting down Pickering. We're recarbonizing Ontario's grid. And, um, you know, uh, zero electric vehicles are supposed to be the only things that we're able to buy as of 2035. So I, I talk about this all the time, but it's like, you know, we're, we're driving at 120 kilometers an hour towards a brick wall of promises. Um, and there's, uh, there's no brakes on the car. There's no, we're, we're not electrification 2.0 is not going on. That's we're not, right. We're not adding to the grid. Yeah. Yeah. And so it'll be interesting to see what they actually come up with and, you know, whether it's science-based or not, or whether, you know, it's fundamentally a policy decision that's not founded on, on science or those kinds of metrics that we talk about, like the carbon abatement costs. But yeah, I mean, to go back to your original question, Chris, I mean, A, this is, a, um, you know, this is not law, first thing. Like, this is a ministerial decision. And so it's not, it wasn't debated in parliament. It wasn't approved or debated or reviewed by any of the parliamentary commissions or uh, committees, sorry. It certainly was not consulted with the public, nor was there, is there any demonstrated uh, evidence that any of the three or four consultative external bodies, expert bodies, like the people that would actually be able to, for instance, like that joint uh, research committee, the JRC, that did the study on that nuclear ha does not do any significant harm and actually does less significant harm than like wind and solar. That expert body, public document advising the politicians, there's no evidence that actually any of that actually took place in Canada. Right? And so it's arbitrary, it's capricious, it's unfounded. But all to say, it's not law, and so it can be changed. It can be changed, can be changed. by a minister, a different minister, or a different government.
And, and I mean, to bring things full circle again, my question for Stephen Gilbo at COP was literally, you know, will your anti-nuclear activist commitments cloud your judgment as the Minister of Environment and Climate Change? Will it impact your decision making? Will it will, will those prejudices, despite the IPCC scientific consensus that we need to dramatically increase our nuclear fleets around the world, you know, will that cloud you? And I mean, it clearly has. And it, um, uh, it's going to be very interesting to figure out what the inner workings of, of government are here, if he'll get his wrist slapped on this. I think it's going to depend tremendously on on people's reaction, and we'll see. Uh, we'll see. I guess what what happens over the next couple of months. But uh, there's an urgency here because that five billion you said is going to be issued. You're thinking within within probably before summer. Yeah, yeah. I, I expect it to be the case. The traditional process is you put out a framework, you get the framework, uh, you have an external review framework, uh, and that's that was issued, and then soon thereafter you go to market. Uh, they've already identified the financial runners, it's TD Bank and the HSBC Holdings, who are going to be doing this, who are going to be placing the bonds with institutional investors, right? I expect, like anything else that's green, self-described green, not scientifically based green, is going to be oversubscribed in the same way that the Bruce green bond was oversubscribed. Um, and if it's successful, um, you know, I expect subsequent government of, of, of Canada bond issues to go this way. Again, it's still small. We're talking about 1% of, of borrowing for this year. Yeah. And, and just to clarify again, um, you know, under a bond framework, the government has no obligation to invest this money in a way that's going to generate the kind of profits to actually pay this off. Correct. Like they, there's no link between how they spend this money no, and, no, no. So, and the outcome. So this could just be a, you know, a, an expensive way to rack a bunch of debt on measures that are not yeah. really that impactful. So, 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 um, so, you know, as far as the green, the sustainable finance has advanced around the world in the EU, et cetera, there, there's a bunch of differences. First of all, one of the things that you're supposed to do is that it, you're supposed to be transparent in terms of the proceeds, right? So, so instead of just, for instance, you know, if you're fortunate enough to own a house, you, when you take a mortgage, you're supposed to use it, it's earmarked for the house. It's not a generic loan. If you take out a loan for a car, it's earmarked for the car. So a green bond is, is supposed to be earmarked for eligible expenditures, right? So that's one difference. So in before, nothing stopped the federal government from using some of its general revenues to, for example, providing credit or guarantee small modular reactor firms, right? And we've, we've done that. They didn't have to have a green bond for that. They didn't have to have a green bond for the financing of, of wind turbines or whatever, right? They didn't have to have a green bond for you know, purchasing TMX. They just took it out of their general revenues. The difference between green bonds, um, among other things, is that it's supposed to be earmarked. But it's not as if you're using those investments in terms of collateral right or security nothing like that it's basically it hasn't got to do with returns it's just expenditure driven right nor importantly is there any requirement that this is additional to what they were otherwise going to do so the feds could have just done this regularly there's no indication and ultimately money is fungible there's no reason to think that they would have not done this anyway so what this is, the green bond is all about signaling. It's all about self-identification 
of being green and self-identifying in green and what, you know, what people often negatively say is virtue signaling. Okay, Gerardo, just just on this point of using government-backed bonds to fund nuclear builds, because this is really exciting to me. Um, you know, Hinkley Point, um, I've heard interest rates were 9, 10, 11%. And that that why why is that that so expensive? Was it was it just privately funded? Um, was it was it a bond? What what's the, what's the difference here? So one of the ways in which we were able in the West to have the electricity system that we've had for the last hundred years is that most of it was done by public entities, uh, so state-owned enterprises. You know, and in Canada, it would be the Ontario Hydros of the world, the, the Hydro-Quebecs of the world. And the way that that was actually done, how was it financed, was that these companies, because they're public companies, would issue bonds, right? So they would issue bonds to borrow the money from the public, but usually from institutional investors. And they would issue those bonds, basically issue bonds to uh, borrow money. And one of the ways that they were able to do this efficiently and effectively was because either implicitly or explicitly, those bonds were guaranteed by the corresponding government. So if I'm a Joe Blow and I want to go borrow $10 billion from the bank, they're going to say, well, how are you going to pay it back? What's your credit rating? Do you have a guarantee, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? What are you building? Is that going to be able to uh, generate revenues for you to pay me back. They would laugh me out the bank, rightfully so. When you do that as a private company, uh, your guarantee is that you could go bankrupt, and a whole series of other things. You know that you know you you may not get the permission to do the project that you're looking for, and so you're borrowing at depending on the year. You're borrowing at five, six, seven, eight, nine percent a year, and so therefore it's much more costly. And so your break-even has to be shorter and you're less inclined to make really long-term investments, like 20, 30, 40, 50 years, because you're never going to have the, the guarantee to be able to actually pay that back. But that's not the way it actually worked. That's not the way we built our grid here in Canada, the way they built the grid in France or the way they built the grid in the UK. The way they built the grid there was either through public entities where, uh, you know, like uh, Ontario Hydro said, look, I'm a, uh, I'm a public company and I'm going to go to the capital markets and borrow money and I'm going to borrow $10 billion. Uh, and so the, the, the banks and the, the lending public would say, well, okay, you're pretty good. You've got a lot of revenues. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get paid back. So I'm going to give you like a, a lower interest rate. Because remember, interest is a reflection of the risk of not being paid back. And so I'm going to give you a lower interest rate than like some private company. But I'm going to even give you a lower interest rate. Why? Because I know that the province of Ontario will always pay me back. They will either legally or implicitly pay me back. And so in that instance, I'm going to give you 2%, right? And so then it becomes super cheap. Hinkley Point, two-thirds two of Hinkley Point is interest payments to, to uh, the, the bond buyers. And I understand in that situation, EDF put up a bond and, and unfortunately couldn't get 
you know, an interest rate better than nine or 10%. The financing wasn't, yeah. And so one of the things they did is in order to do that is in the next round, they went to what is called the regulated asset base model, which was basically uh, is guarantees like we do in Canada with rate of return and what is done in the United States and Canada for literally 80 years for federal, for private companies, which is this, which is the state saying, look, because wholesale markets are so uh, uncertain and, and are so variable where it's very difficult to guarantee a revenue flow that is uh, in the long term, we're going to guarantee you a rate of return. We're going to guarantee you certain revenues. And that revenue stream allows you to de-risk your investment. And by de-risking the investment, that basically means you're able to access the capital markets at a lower rate compared to a risked investment, right? So, so these are the things that we learned how to do for 80 years in North America and in parts of Western Europe. We learned to, if we're not going to do this publicly through a publicly guaranteed bonds, we're going to de-risk private investment to be able that they can actually borrow for cheaper, which is ultimately good because that means that we as consumers get lower prices. This is, this is just blowing my mind, Edgardo. It's blowing my mind. Um, it's all of a sudden making making a nuclear renaissance seem seem doable. Honestly, I mean, if if governments can can get the political consensus, if the if we can shift the culture towards um, really appreciating what nuclear has to offer us, particularly in terms of this time of war, in terms of energy security, a, a true way to to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. Um, there's a huge amount of money around, um, floating around the world. This this giant pool of investor money looking for a place to put itself in, in a green investment, well, for, get a guaranteed sure. return. And the government, the government can guarantee it. AAA rated governments can can offer. That's right. Bonds um, at two percent interest. That's that's a game changer to me. I hadn't I'd never heard of that. Never thought about it. Last year, uh, total investment in generation was was across the world. I think uh, four hundred billion dollars. And that's just maintenance and also for new generation. There's a huge amount of money. There's a lot of money to be made and there's a lot of intermediaries and there's a lot of greenwashing and a lot of opinion-based classifications and taxonomies. And then there's science and facts. And our, our challenge is to make sure that we stay on the science and that once we recognize the science, we facilitate both public investment by like what you're saying now, Chris, which is you you politically try to persuade governments to make the kind of necessary investment and to guarantee that investment being made by those public entities, or you de-risk the process by providing financial mechanisms that essentially lower the price of, bor- of borrowing. Okay, just just because I think we should wrap up because this has been dense um, and I don't want to go on too long. But I just wanted to, you know, people talk about, you know, the need for a sort of wartime. I mean, war is not hot at all right now, but, a, you know, war, World War II level mobilization, a wartime type mobilization to combat climate change. A lot of, you know, I've certainly seen the propaganda posters for buy your war bonds. I'm just trying to get a sense of like, you know, in terms of funding climate action um, and making that comparison to funding the war effort. How significant were bonds, um, say in World War II, and you know, off the cuff? Uh, I know no, you, I don't, you know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Look, I mean, and I don't know whether those bonds were truly dedicated to buying munitions. 
right? Whether if you knew that if you bought a bond, you would buy a bullet or if you bought a tank or you bought a whatever. I think it was, my sense of the situation was, was that um, it was just general government expenditures, right? And, and the government needed a lot. Look, we're just coming out from huge expenditure by the federal government in the context of COVID-19, right? Like literally they doubled their expenditures and the debt level went very much higher because they borrowed, you know, without actually increasing taxes. So the the five billion dollars that is going towards this green bond, again, uh, this year the government will be uh, going to the market to borrow five hundred billion dollars. So this is one percent, right? So it's not a large amount, but it is important in terms of signaling where they want to do, what they want to do, what they consider to be sustainable and what is not sustainable. And in non-sustainable is fossil fuels, alcohol, right, armaments. As if the government was going to spend a bunch of money on gambling, um, smokes yeah, yeah. Uh, and drinks. Well, that's I mean, a, perhaps that's, that's a what virtue signal part but, of it, right? Yeah. Like that I am, like you signal, you virtue signal by two things, by what you considered to be virtuous and sustainable and what you considered not to be. But this is literally the government saying, we, the government, promise we're not going to spend this $5 billion, you know, racking up gambling debts, smoking darts, <laughs> uh, drinking brewskis and, uh, you know, manufacturing weapons. I mean, it's it's really comical when you look at it. And, you know, you're saying like, you know, this is fungible, you know, who knows what they'll spend money on. They could have done another way. But I mean, this is an opportunity. This is a way to raise $5 billion and refurbish Pickering and, you know, prevent Canada losing a third of its, you know, emissions reductions, um, successes since peak. Like they're, they're, let's not poo poo this. This, this is significant. Yeah. 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 You know, no, I, I, what I wanted to do is that I just wanted to make sure that I put the context in terms of this is right. a, a this gotcha. is a large 5 billion sounds like a lot of money, but it is like 1% of the, the gross borrowing that the government will do this year. And, and by to, to make that sort of war bond analogy again, I mean, by by kneecapping and saying nuclear can't be a part of this, I kind of feel like it's a war bond. You were saying like these war bonds, you didn't think they were, you know, it's going to buy X amount of munitions, but it's it's kind of the equivalent of buying a war bond and saying, you know, you can it's only going to be uh, we're only going to use bows and arrows in, in the Second World well, War. Yeah. We're not well, yeah. Well, well, the other thing <laughs> you know is, I mean, it, it's it's it's, you know, it's something that that I personally will be wanting to try to change for for a bunch of reasons. So the, the first thing is, is that in the same way that the EU taxonomy was so important because it is science-based and it is mandatory, right? So this is the other thing, like the EU taxonomy is mandatory. So like, like Germany, France, you know, whatever, Portugal, any other EU country does not have a choice to go to an external market-based, sentiment-based methodology or framework to call something green or to call something sustainable, right? So, so in that respect, it, it's kind of like the, the whole champagne, right? It, it is regulated, right? It's not a free market unregulated process. This thing right now for Canada is voluntary, like no one forced Canada to do this. They think it's, you know, it's appropriate, it's good to get into the sustainable finance market. But it, it does two things. First of all, it starts to influence what is happening at the provincial level. Because it creates, if the possibility that Bruce Power wants to go get and access the capital markets through a green bond, that Canada, the federal government, last week 
designated nuclear energy as not sustainable would make it harder for private companies like Bruce to go into the market, even though they had just done it last year, right? It also makes it harder for the provincial governments where energy and electricity are managed. So the, the provincial government in Ontario, uh, our province, uh, went out and got a green bond about uh, seven years ago. They were one of the first governments in, in North America to do so. It makes it harder. It doesn't make it impossible because none of these are, are mandatory. It makes it harder for you know, the provinces then to get sustainable financing for, among other things, for nuclear energy. So it makes it harder for a precedent. Yeah. it makes it harder for the the provinces and it makes it harder for the private sector, right? It also what it also does is that it influences the decision making process and recommendations by these supposedly uh, external advisor groups that are actually putting together the Canadian taxonomy. Like the CSA has been arguing for, you know, with these working groups for two years, they can't come to a consensus on it. And so, again, when the federal government says, look, this is in, this is out, that's going to be influencing, it's hard to believe they won't influence, what is happening at the advisory committee level. Okay, I got one last question for you, Gerdo. Just thinking about bonds as a, as a financial tool to, to make some climate action happen. We know that uh, nuclear plants are, are, are hard to fund. Um, discount rates are high. Interest rates are high. Um, could a bond be issued for, you know, $5, $10 billion to, to fund a nuclear plant? Um, you know, paying like it's guaranteed, you know, people buy into the bond, the government's backing it. They're guaranteeing we're going to pay you back that money in 20 years plus 2% interest per year. I mean, wouldn't that be a way to get around these usurious interest rates? I mean, it would, it would involve the government taking on the risk. But at a time of historically low interest rates, that is a potential mechanism for government to get a bunch of nuclear plants built. If if we were living in times, um, you know, where we took electrification 2.0 seriously, yeah, oh, for we sure. Were, we were I mean, serious about, and that's the way with you know building that electrical grid to right. to, to yeah. power those yeah, cars. Those exactly, and traditionally that's the way it's been done. So, for example, when you know, in the same way that Bruce Power, which is a private sector enterprise, issued a bond to help it finance its refurbishment, like a like a provincial uh, electricity company, whether it's BC Hydro, Quebec Hydro. Quebec Hydro issues millions and billions of bonds on, a, on an annual basis to finance uh, its infrastructure. Um, and it's all guaranteed by the, by, the, by, the, you know, by the federal, by the provincial government. And so, yes, that's the way that's exactly it's being done. And, you know, before sustainable financing was a thing they were issued by you know by uh, OPG OPG does it as well or the old Ontario Hydro Ontario Hydro had uh, billions of loans out there to finance among other things you know it's it's dams it's uh, it's you know nuclear build out etc so yeah it exists it's the way it's traditionally been done and to this day I assure you that you know OPG and BC Hydro, Manitoba Hydro, BC Hydro is managing billions of debt that are being paid off by, you know, ratepayer uh, charges. And that's the way that you do it. And you guarantee it by the, you guarantee it by the state. It seems like an elegant way to, uh, to build the mega projects we're going to require. That's exactly to, the way uh, it mitigate is. Mitigate and adapt to climate yeah, change. That's yeah. exactly okay. it. And you just call it green and you have a sustainable and you get a third party or a second party opinion to do it. 
um, and you're good to go. You go out to the capital markets. Again, Bruce just did it. It's they bad. raised half a billion dollars, um, and it was successful, and they're likely to do it again. Yeah, I mean, from what I heard, they, they had interest for seven times that amount, $3.5 billion. Yeah, it's not unusual to be, the, the technical terms, oversubscribed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we know what's possible. We've identified here on Decouple, you know, the, the mechanism to uh, to fund the nuclear renaissance. Let's get her done. Um, <laughs> I almost feel like I, I kind of editorialize so much uh, on episodes of The Oat Card. I don't know what it is. Folks, uh, please do remember to like, subscribe, and review us. It does a lot for the podcast. Also, please go over to our YouTube channel. We're planning a major expansion on YouTube. Jesse's uh, going to be really upping his output with Decouple Studios. Um, support us on Patreon. And last of all, a big uh, thanks to Dylan Moon, uh, the excellent producer of Decouple. Um, you'll probably notice, I think, from about episode 60 onwards, the sound quality got remarkably better. So thank you, Dylan, for everything that you do as well. Um, that's it for this week, folks. Looking forward to uh, another great episode next week. Thanks again, Edgardo. Bye for now. Bye, Chris. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.